Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption podcast. I thank you again for coming to listen and taking the time to uh, go through the Word of God with us and study the Word of God with us and honor Jesus Christ with us. And um, we just appreciate the the time and attention you give to this audio and uh, some of the video. <laughs> More people listen to the audio than the video, but that's all right. Uh, I wouldn't want to see my face either, but <laughs> um, what we're going to do today is uh, we recently... Well, I say recently, it's been a few months now, I think. Um, we, we had a TBI not long ago, and I was given the task of teaching uh, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 7. Uh, so I'm going to record those here for the podcast, and um, I'm going to do my best to go through this as quickly as I can and uh, try to get as much benefit out of it as we can and and uh, just go through my notes, which will be an, an you know, an overview. We'll, we'll dive into a few things a little more in depth, but but generally, it's not going to be a, a deep dive into Acts chapter one. Um, first, we'll start with an outline uh, of of chapter one. Acts chapter one verses one through two reference us back to the Gospel of Luke, and of course, we know Luke wrote the book of Acts, and uh, in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he's writing to Theophilus, and uh, and so that key, that theme carries over into this book, Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, are the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, the future work of the apostles. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, Christ ascends into heaven. Acts 1, verses 12 through 14, the apostles wait prayerfully and obediently. And then Acts 1, verses 15 through 26, Matthias is counted among the twelve. It's getting the apostles ready for, for the Lord the Lord's going to ascend. He's going to leave them, uh, at least physically. His, his physical presence will no longer be there. And um, he is preparing them for what's, go- what's going to come next. And he's, he's trying to get them ready. And, and so chapter 1 serves as preparatory, preparatory work for chapter 2, and then all that will take off from there. Uh, the, the apostles are given final instructions. Uh, they are told to wait. Uh, they are told what to wait for. That's important. I mean, this kind of instruction helps me. Um, you know, all this um, mysterious, just, you know, just wait and hope that the answer comes type stuff doesn't, doesn't I struggle with that. 
Uh, but when the Lord says, here are your final instructions. I want you to go wait. I'm going to tell you what you're waiting for. Um, I'm going to tell you what to do next. And then, and then, of course, the missing apostle was, was replaced. And then when all that was complete, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So, uh, so it, went, it went very well. It, 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 they had clear instructions to follow, and, and the Lord laid it out for them in a, in a goodly way. And all they had to do was obey, and they did that. Uh, now, you, there are discussions about whether they were scared and hiding and all of that, and um, and, and those may be relevant. They, they may be part of, of the reality of what was taking place there. Uh, but they did obey what, what Jesus told them to do. Now, in, in the TBI, you know, something came out that uh, Brother Keith Stensis was teaching. Uh, and, he, and he talked about the balance that he, that he noticed between Peter and Paul. Now, Luke is writing. And somehow he's able to strike this balance in the book between Peter and Paul. And, of course, we know there are other people involved in the book. Uh, but but primarily it was it was between those two. The book is almost and to some extent divided between what happened with Peter and what happened with Paul. Now the reason that's so amazing is that we we get the indication that Luke was traveling with the Apostle Paul. It's it's really striking when you read about the Apostle Paul on that ship. Uh, on his way to Rome, and, and of course they get shipwrecked and they end up on the, the island of uh, Melita and, and all that. Um, the, the terminology that Luke uses is we, us, our. He was, it, it appears he was there. He was with the Apostle Paul when these things happened. And, uh, and, and he writes from that perspective. And, and so when, when you, in, in multiple places he does this, and you see that Luke was with the Apostle Paul often in a lot of the book of Acts, though it's not a glaring personality that comes out. Um, you, you get the indication reading the book of Acts that he was there. He was physically present with, with the apostle Paul. And uh, then, then Paul writes to Timothy from his prison in Rome, and he says, only Luke the physician is with me. So, so when Paul finally gets to Rome and he's in prison, Luke is still there. Uh, and yet he was still able to strike this balance between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, which indicates it was possibly uh, done with the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but if I was with Paul all the time and I had to write this narrative, like something like the book of Acts, it would lean heavily towards Paul. There wouldn't be some sort of balance between Peter and Paul. And uh, and, and Paul does make up a large portion of the book and and. And, and I, I understand that, but it's just interesting. Um, now, let's talk for a minute about the start of the church. Um, this is important, and, uh, and, and I'm going to introduce you to a new idea here, and I hope you'll hear me out and just follow along, and, and hopefully it, it blesses your heart and makes you think. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't require you to, to, uh, you know, to agree with me on this or uh, to adopt this idea, it's just something for you to think about and 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 to follow along and and hopefully it will encourage you to study the Word of God and 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 also to verify what you what you say you believe, what you claim you believe, and 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 to know why why I have adopted this line of thought. Here's why, and be able to defend it and explain it, and and those would be good things for you to be able to do. Now, the Bible provides two passages that could serve as the starting point of the New Testament church. There, there are two p- 
possibilities. All right. Uh, now, before we get into those two, Hebrews 9 tells us the New Testament begins with the death of Jesus Christ. According to Hebrews 9, uh, a testament is of no force without the death of the testator. The testator has to die in order for the testament uh, to, to have any validity. And Jesus Christ is that testator. When he dies, uh, the, the New Testament begins. And then, of course, he is buried and he rises from the dead. And we spring from, uh, from Old Testament doctrine and Old Testament realities, what, what is often called the Old Testament economy, into the New Testament directly. Now, with that, nothing before the death of Christ is, is considered New Testament. Now, I understand you, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and before you, turn, before you get to Matthew, there's a title page that says New Testament, and, and that is partially true. Um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have, toward the end of those books, the death of Jesus Christ. Well, that's when the New Testament begins. But you wouldn't separate the last few chapters of Matthew from the from the first several chapters of Matthew just so you could have a title page there saying New Testament. <laughs> that make no sense. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are both Old and New Testament. That's one of the things you have to keep in mind when studying the four Gospels. And here's just a quick example to illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, in, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper. And then he tells that leper, go show yourself to the priests in accord with the law of Moses. Well, that's obviously not New Testament doctrine, but that's well after the title page that said we're in the New Testament. All right. So you, you, you got to keep in mind that as you go through the four gospels, what's happening is the, the Old Testament is fading out. It's, 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 we're transitioning, we're moving to the New Testament. So in the four Gospels, you have the emergence of the New Testament and, and the realities that come with that. And you have the closing of the Old Testament and the realities that come with that. And so the, the, the two kind of flow together there as, as one dies and the other uh, comes to life. And, and that all happens uh, officially, technically, with the death of Jesus Christ. Um, now, when does the entity known as the New Testament church or the body of Christ begin? And this is the topic of debate and argument. And I'm, this is, I'm not going to provide you an argument. I'm, I'm not going to provide you a, de, a debate. I'm going to give you some things from Scripture to think about, and then you do with it as you will. Um, we didn't come from John the Baptist. We, we, we are, you know, John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, not a New Testament saint, not a New Testament member of the body of Christ. He had no relationship to the body of Christ other than he introduced the coming of the testator. That's it. Um, and so um, the New Testament begins on a very technical basis after the death of Jesus Christ. That, that's important to understand. That means nothing before that can be counted as New Testament. It's, it's not the church. It's not, it's, there's no New Testament church. There's little, very little New Testament doctrine. All right. And so, so with that in mind, 1 Corinthians 12 says that we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. So that seems to provide two conditions that must first be met. The body of Christ has to exist, obviously, in order for you to be baptized into something. Well, that something needs to exist. 
And second, and, and this may, this, it, it may or may not happen in this order. Um, second, the Holy Spirit must be present. Uh, so he has to be given to, to, to that body, um, in order for these things to, to, uh, to, to happen or to work. Now, when Christ, when, when we trust in Christ, the Spirit places us into the body, making us members one of another. Uh, the body did not yet exist for the apostles, and they had, they had been promised the coming of the Spirit. So we, we know these two things are coming, but when did they come? When, when did the two of them come and, and begin to exist in such a way that we could be baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit, not water baptism, but by the Spirit, and become part of what, what came to be known as the body of Christ, the church. Um, this process is established, I think, by first giving, uh, the, by, by first the giving of the Spirit. Um, now let's, let's turn to John chapter 20, and uh, we'll look at verses uh, 11 through 18, real fast, John chapter 20, um, and verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white uh, sitting, the one, the, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Uh, she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou, ha if thou have borne him hence, Tell me where thou hast uh, laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I, I, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that uh, she had seen the Lord and he had spoken these things unto her. Now we read that to establish we, 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 we have there in that passage the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. And, and in fact, uh, in, in that passage, he talks about his ascending to the Father. Um, that there, if you go on to read the passage, you know, he says, Touch me not, and then a few verses down, they touch him which means that that ascent to the Father, at least temporarily, took place and he came back and they are now able to touch him. But the point is that he is risen from the dead. This is not prior to his death. This is not prior to his resurrection. So we are in New Testament territory, technically and officially. All right, now let, let's continue reading. Let, go back to John 20 and we'll read verses 19 through 23 and, and see what we have here. Verse 19 then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when they had so, when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's very important. That's not insignificant. Verse 23, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. All right, now the Lord Jesus Christ is standing there with the disciples, the apostles, the disciples, and he has breathed on them. And and through that process, they received the Holy Ghost. Now, this is well before Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down and, and you know, the, the, the tongues like as flames of fire and, and, and all that interesting stuff. Um, uh, here, the, the, the Lord has given them the Holy Spirit. And this would indicate the first condition, at least in a limited, on a limited scale, uh, had been met. They have the Holy Ghost. They have received the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Lord said he was sending them, and therefore he gave them the Holy Spirit before that took place, before they go out. And of course, we learn in Acts chapter 1 that the purpose for them receiving the Holy Spirit was to be endued with power from on high to be a witness, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Um, this passage is not, of course, it's not insignificant. It directly relates to the start of the church. Uh, but the question is, did this also create a starting point for the body of Christ? That That's... That's now what we need to figure out. Now, I want to show you something very interesting, and, and just stay with me. It's, even if you don't agree with it, it's interesting. It's fun to study and look at, uh, but, it, but it might give us some in, indication as to what just happened when Jesus Christ did what he just did. Now, go with me to Genesis chapter 2, and let's read verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7 and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So here we have the first man, Adam, and, and God wants to give that man life and, and, and the source of our life. All right, now we, we know what the Bible says about our blood, but in order for your body to be physically alive, it has to have a spirit. And so God breathed into this man and made him a living soul. That's, that's that living spirit. When we die, the spirit returns to the God that gave it. Your, your, your body returns to the ground. It becomes dust again. And, and your soul goes either to be with, with, it's either absent from the body and present with the Lord, or it's lifting up its eyes in hell being in torment. It's, it's one of those two. And so God just took this, this creature that he formed from the dust of the ground, in order to give it life, he breathed into it. That's very interesting. All right, now look at, let's go to Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 37, I believe is what I want. And um, ver we'll read verses 1 through 11. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, these, these, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, <laughs> thou knowest. That's the right answer. 
when you want to know what does God know, what, what can God do, when God wants to, you know, an answer to a question, a good answer might be, thou knowest, <laughs> or whatever you say. I, that's what I agree with. And, and then he might say, well, you don't know what I'm going to say. Like, whatever it is, I, I, I agree with it. <laughs> You're right. Verse four. And again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. So here we go again. We've got, we've got this, this formation of dead bones, no life. But what's going to cause them to have life? The breath of God. And, and, and then they'll live. Verse six, and I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon, came up upon them and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy son of man and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. Here we go again. And breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for all our parts. That's very interesting. God, God creates the first man and to give him life. He breathes into that man. Here, the nation of Israel is cut off from life. They're nothing but a valley of dry bones. God restores them physically, but in order to give them life. They can have skin. The bones can be connected. But God has to breathe into them in order for them to have life, in order to give them the life that they need. So when God created the first man, it was the breath of God that gave it life. God created the, the, the nation of Israel. It was the breath of God that gave them life. Well, what about the body of Christ? John 20, Jesus Christ, who is God, breathed into the body of Christ and gave it life. Uh, you, 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 can't, you, you can't disregard that. I mean, that's... You, you don't necessarily have to agree with it. You don't have to adopt it. I, I, I get that. I understand it's different from what you're used to and, and uh, may, may stretch your comfort a little bit. And I, I, no problem. I understand that. But you have to admit that's, that's pretty significant. Uh, that, that's, we, we, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe in running the cross-references and tying things together with the Word of God and looking here a little and there a little and precept upon precept and line upon line. And, and, and we know that God spreads the Word of God. He spreads ideas about various topics throughout the Word of God, and they are significant in terms of explaining one and, uh, and the other. Um, and so how did the first man gain life? Well, God breathed into him. 
How did the nation of Israel gain life? God breathed into them. Well, how did the body of Christ gain life? Well, in John 20, Jesus Christ breathed into them and, and gave them the life that, that they needed. So now here, here's the reality, okay? Here, here's, we're going to tie John 20 and Acts 2 together. I, I don't know that they can be, I don't know that they can exist independently in terms of the start of the body of Christ. They, I, 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 there's a connection between them that's essential. And I believe this is what it is. I, I think the body of Christ was given life, existence in John 20. And so you could, you could argue that technically that's the start of the church. That would be a valid argument. But then in Acts 2, the church was empowered to carry out its mandates. So something definitely was given to them in Acts chapter 2 that was not given to them in Acts 20. And, and in Acts chapter 2, they, be, they began to be able to carry out the work that Jesus Christ expected them to carry out. Uh, so I, I think you're going to struggle to dogmatically separate the two. I think both are significant when, in terms of the start of the church. Uh, what good is it to have a church that has life but does nothing? And, and Jesus Christ was very clear in Acts chapter 1 that something is going to come upon you from the Holy Spirit that's going to empower you. And, and so both are unbelievably significant. And so in, in, in my mind, I would say the technical start of the church would be John 20 when it was given life. It was, it was that, that body was, uh, these men have the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ breathed, it, breathed, breathed into them the Holy Spirit. And now the body has life. Okay. But then I would say in Acts chapter two, it was empowered. Remember, Acts one is preparatory work for Acts chapter two and all that would take place after that. Acts chapter two is when it was given the ability to carry out the work that Jesus Christ expected them to do or expect them to be part of. So uh, I, I think those two need to be together. Now, the Acts of the Apostles would be better named the Acts of Jesus or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, the main character in the book is the Holy Spirit. And, and so there, we should have more emphasis in the book of Acts on the Holy Spirit than we do on other members of the Godhead, though all, all three members of the Godhead are uh, are clearly working in and throughout the book of Acts. Uh, but Jesus is, is working through his apostles from heaven, but they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and it is the Spirit of God who's giving them the written word of God, who's inspiring the word of God, who's, uh, who's in, indwelling them as they go about establishing the foundation of the New Testament church and New Testament Christianity. So um, what, the Acts of the Apostles, I mean, that sounds exciting, and praise the Lord, they, they get to be a part of it, and we get to be a part of it, uh, but, it but it's ultimately the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ who make all of this possible. Now, Theophilus, we, we don't know much about him. We don't know really who he is, where he came from, where he went, uh, what he was doing, why Luke was writing to him. We don't know anything about him. Historically, there are about five different theories as to who he might be, and uh, they, they all end by saying, but we don't know. <laughs> So what's interesting, what we do know is his name means lover of God or beloved of God. And so if you take that, um, if you take that in, in the broader sense, then it could be said that the book of Acts is addressed to all who love God or who, who are loved by God. 
That's a blessing. Now, this book was written to a person, and Theophilus is that person. And, and, but we also know it was written for our learning and admonition, and it, it, and it is addressing the saints of New Testament Christianity, and, and we are, are to learn from it and, and take all we can from it. But it, praise the Lord that he's writing to people who love him and, and people he loves. That's a blessing. That's exciting. And, and I, I sure thank the Lord for that. Now, um, verse 1 gives us important details regarding the order of the Lord's ministry. And, and that's significant. He began to do and teach. You can't separate those two. And you don't want to get that order. In fact, that order is flip-flopped in almost every discipline that exists in the world. You have some, you have some person who got, uh, who spent their entire life in college learning, but never went out and did any of the work. And, and so they're, they're, they lack the experience necessary to be able to actually teach. They never got to the doing part. They got the learning down, but they didn't do the doing. And now they, they bypassed the doing and they went straight to the teaching and it, and it creates an imbalance that's not helpful. So it's essential to, to be a person, you know, it, it's not enough to be, to have knowledge to be able to tell people about stuff. Um, that's, that's, you know, that, that's fine. It's okay. It's not wrong. It's good to learn, but what, but that knowledge needs to be intermingled with some experience or you're going to have, you're going to be lopsided in what you're trying to teach and what you're trying to present to people. And it doesn't come with, it doesn't have the force that it should have because there's not a life to back it up. And so with Jesus Christ, there was a life that backed up what he was teaching and what he was instructing his apostles to go and do. That, that's the strength of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God's telling you, Jesus Christ did it. <laughs> and so now I want you to adopt the, mind, the, 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 the frame of mind that helped him to accomplish my will. And, uh, and, and that comes with uh, such a layer of authenticity that that it may it, it it adds some emphasis, some force to your words, to your teaching. When you when you've never worked out in the real world and you've never had the uh, the, the the experience that comes from doing, and you go straight to the teaching, um, it, it, you're not going to make a lot of sense in in many in many places, and it's going to be glaring. People are going to know it. They're going to see it. Especially someone who comes in to learn who might already have more experience than, than you or the teacher or whatever the case may be. Um, Jesus Christ, he became obedient. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a man. He became a servant. He made himself of no reputation. He died the death of the cross. He did all that. And, and then verse 9 of Philippians 2 says that, that because of these things, he would be highly exalted. That, that's the way, that's the order of events. You don't get the exaltation, you don't get the teaching spot until you do. If you want to be effective at all, at least, that's, that's the way it should happen. If your conduct fails to match your words, you're a hypocrite, and nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Um, if you teach one thing and do another, you're just untrustworthy. You're, you're a double-minded man who wants to learn from that level of instability. <laughs> uh, so go do it and then teach it. Um, of course, we have an example of this in Matthew 23. Let's go to Matthew 23 and verse, read verses 
1 through 7, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. That's not good. That, that's what happens when you, when you flip that and you begin to teach something you've never done. Well, I learned it in a classroom. Okay, well, great. I'm glad you learned. I'm, I'm glad you're, you gained the knowledge and education, but you lack the wisdom and understanding because you've never done it. Um, you know, one, one strong example of this is if you come from, from an engineering background, uh, I, I used to, um, I, I used to work for Boeing at, Ke- at Kelly USA down in San Antonio, Texas. And um, uh, we, there was always this discrepancy between those of us who, who worked on the planes. That is, every day we got up, put our hands on, a pl- on an aircraft down there. At the time, I was working on C-5s, C-17s, one of the two. I don't remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. That was 2000. 7, 2008, something like that. That was a long time ago. Um, uh, anyways, so, but, but physically working on the plane, certain realities are going to, are going to be, you're going to be aware of certain realities because you do it every day. You, you touch the plane, you work on it, you take it apart. And one of those realities is the amount of time it takes to accomplish a task on an aircraft. And so then in the back room, in the back office, you have these engineers who are highly educated and have spent their entire life learning, but have never touched an aircraft. I mean, they might have touched one, but they've never worked on one. They, they haven't, they never got to the doing part. They, they only have the learning. And, and so it's their job because they are the engineers to establish the, uh, the amount of time allotted for certain, for certain work to be done. Well, they've never worked on the plane. So how do they know how much time is needed? And so you get these silly, these wild, uh, Time frames to work on certain to work certain jobs, which you, when you're on a government contract for something like like a military aircraft, you get you, you're given a time block to accomplish a job, and you got to do it. You have to literally clock into that time block, and then you have that amount of time to get that job done. Well, sometimes they're wildly off track. I mean, just horrendous, and and sometimes they give you you know, 13 hours to do something that'll take you an hour. And sometimes they give you an hour to do something that'll take you 13 hours. And so it was always lopsided because there's no experience. There's no doing. And, um, and so it, it, those things get out of balance if you're not careful. And here you have these Pharisees. They're happy to tell you what to do, but they're not going to do it. Now, Jesus said, we're not going to read the rest of the passage. We're going to move on so we can try and get as much of this accomplished today as we can. But um, Jesus said of those men, what they say, do it. The same might be true of your, your engineer, your, 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 your university teacher. They're probably giving you some, a lot of good information, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about and turn from, from an experiential perspective. Uh, so he said, what they say, do it. But you need to first demonstrate yourself to be a good example of the Christian life. And, and, and then go and teach. Um, it, it, when, when, you, when you just show up and wanna, wanna, you want that position of authority to teach people, uh, it really causes a lot of trouble. Um, 
it, when you're, if you're a pastor or a missionary and you're training somebody, well, the, you want to give them room to prove themselves, to, to, to do, before you start giving them too much place to teach. And, and as, when, when, they, when they get a taste of that authority or that position, then it becomes difficult to tell what, what their character really is. Are, are, they, are, they, are, they, are they acting this way to keep this position or, or this authority that's been granted them or, God forbid, money in exchange for what they're doing? Or, or, or do they really live this? Or is it really who they are? It's hard to tell once, once these things, once these privileges come into play. Now, the, the, you know, of course, Acts chapter 1 talks about the, the time period until the Lord was taken up. Um, he, was, he ascended in, in Luke chapter 1 back into heaven. And uh, Luke, the author of the gospel, the gospel of Luke uh, and the book of Acts, he details the Lord's ascension in both. Now, in Luke, at the end of that gospel, uh, nothing, or excuse me, noting the Lord's earthly ministry, it, it, you know, it came to an end, but in Acts, it's noted, it, it points to the beginning of, of another ministry, all right? So, so the Lord's earthly ministry comes to an end with his ascension in the book of Luke, but his ascension in the book of Acts begins his ministry from heaven, working through the apostles, through the disciples, and all those wonderful things that take place. Now, um, in the Bible, the, the village of Bethany is an incredible place, and it's a special place to me. Many incredible things happen in Bethany in, in the Bible, if you, if you look through and, and you see all the things that take place there. Now, um, some years back, I did a study on Bethany that detailed all these events that take place in, in Bethany, according to the four Gospels. And um, it, it led me to write a song. I wrote a song about it. If you uh, listen to the podcast enough, you'll hear it. Um, a, a young lady named Emma Strand I wrote the song, gave it to her. It's terribly written for for a song, <laughs> and um, she was able to make something beautiful out of it. It, it was just wonderful, and uh, so she she sang the song. It's 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 called "Oh Bethany." You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on my podcast. Uh, if you're interested in hearing it, just send me a note and I'll send it to you. Um, otherwise, that that that's one thing that came out of it. The other thing that came out of it is we named my, my wife and I named our first daughter Bethany based on this, this reality. Her name is Bethany Lene Irvin. And, um, and the name suits her. She's a, a wonderful child, uh, most of the time. <laughs> so I, I'm going to show you, I'm going to run through these events really quickly that took place in Bethany. And, um, at, but, but I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to show you what, why this is significant, what, why, why I'm tying this together. I'm just going to, I'll tell you the, the verses and what took place and, and we'll move on quickly uh, because I want to get to, I want to tie something together here that took place at the end of Luke and also at the beginning of the book of Acts and it all happened in Bethany. And, and then I want to try and point out what might be significant about that in the future. So Matthew 26 verses 6 through 13, a woman having an alabaster box anoints the Lord. And that, that you can also read that in Mark 14 and also in John 12. Now in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Jesus rides on, on the colt of an ass into Jerusalem. And uh, uh, you can also read that in Luke 19, 29 through 40, and Matthew 21. In John 11, verses 1 through 5, Lazarus is risen from the dead, which is a, an incredible event. 
Uh, and then 11.18 tells us that Bethany is nigh unto Jerusalem. Um, and, and so now this, this brings us to Luke. There are a few other passages. Um, we're, we won't get into those, but uh, this brings us to Luke 24. And this is, this is what's so significant here. Uh, let's, let's read Luke 24, verses 36 through 51. Luke 24, 36 through 51. And as they thus uh, spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you any meat? Have you, have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. All right, now you see the overlap there. If you, We haven't read all of Acts chapter 1 yet. I'm, I'm sure at some point in your life you have read it and are familiar with it. But there, there's a lot of overlap there with what's, what takes place in Acts chapter 1 and what the Lord is saying here. So this, this is going to pick right back up in Acts chapter 1. But, but let's, let's continue reading. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, which is very interesting. Uh, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So the Lord goes out with them as far as to Bethany, and he ascends up into, into heaven. And, and this is significant. If you go to Acts chapter 1, and, and I'll show you what I, what I mean here. Let me check what I, what's in my notes here and make sure I don't miss anything. So they're commanded to tarry in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 1. He led them as far as Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. All right, now this is, this is very important. Uh, look, at, look at Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11, verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, what, what, what this indicates to me is that when Jesus ascended in Luke 24, 
they were in Bethany. He left from Bethany from the, from the Mount of Olives. When he ascended in Acts chapter 1, that means that they are standing together in Bethany, right? On the, on top, atop the Mount of Olives. And so we know that Zechariah says when Jesus returns, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. And the angels in Acts 1, they said that this same Jesus will return in like manner as you have seen him go. So there's a strong chance, all right? I want to want to emphasize chance. This is not a again, this is not something to argue over or fight over. It's just very interesting. There's a strong chance that Jesus Christ will return back to the earth and his feet will step down in Bethany, the same place where he ascended from. He will descend back into Bethany, atop the Mount of Olives, across from Jerusalem, the Valley of Megiddo between them. And so when he puts his feet down, that mountain, that, that the Mount of Olives is going to cleft and, and, and go its different directions. And so, uh, I, I mean, I hope you find stuff like that interesting, and I hope it stirs your heart to, to study the Word of God and and, uh, and and to seek these things out and 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 to do all you can to 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 know what God's talking about and and put your heart and mind into it think it through look into it you know search some things out it's it's exciting it's interesting now now we come to an interesting idea that confounds many of our brethren and and I think many of them are our brethren I don't I don't, um, I don't you know, of course, I, I maintain a healthy separation from Pentecostals for good reason, uh, but I think many of them are probably saved, and and many of them love the Lord and and want to do well. They're just confused about some things. They've got to get out of the Book of Acts every now and then, and and try to read the epistles and, and learn something other than speaking in tongues or some of the other wilder things that that our Pentecostal brethren do. But we're going to talk here real quick about being baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now, they were already given the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know if everyone here on in Acts chapter 1 has been given the Holy Ghost, but a goodly number of them, by Jesus, gave them the Holy Ghost. Uh, they were already given the Holy Ghost, but uh, now they will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. In Acts 2, they were baptized or immersed in the Holy Ghost. When you are baptized with water, you are immersed in that water. And so the same is true of the baptism of the Spirit. And, and they're not the same thing. They're, they exist for two entirely different purposes. Water does not get you in a body of Christ. It doesn't make you part of the body of Christ. It doesn't has no, no benefit other than it, it demonstrates your willingness to obey the Lord and be water baptized after you get saved. That's it. Now, if your church uses water baptism as a, as a way to become a member of their local body, that, that's a difference of administration. That's up to your church. There's no scriptural mandate for that. There's nothing in the Word of God that would, that would tell you to do that. Now, many would point to Acts chapter 2, uh, but I, I, I'm, I would argue there is no water baptism in Acts chapter 2. None of the baptisms mentioned in Acts chapter 2 make any sense in accord with water baptism, with a physical baptism. It makes perfect sense if it's a spiritual baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. And, and so maybe one day we'll, we'll get into that and we'll talk about that. Uh, but, uh, but, but being baptized, John the Baptist said that someone would come after him who could baptize with the Holy Ghost. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of that baptism is to place you into the body of Christ. Water baptism does not put you into anybody. 
it doesn't it doesn't put you into a local assembly other than that being an, an arbitrary requirement by by that pastor that that's that's a choice made by that local church it's there's no scriptural foundation for that that's just a, a difference of administration and that's fine it's okay it's it's if that's how you and your church do it that's that's up to you that's between you and the Lord um, I just wouldn't make that a requirement for other churches or or insinuate that other churches are wrong for, for not doing it that way. That's the way you've chosen to do it. And that's, that's the order you set in your local assembly. That's a difference of administration that you have chosen. No problem. Praise the Lord. I, I hope it works for you and I hope it all goes well. I, 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 I don't see the need to fight with people over something like that. Um, and so... And so in the Bible, men were baptized after they were saved. It was the follow-on step of obedience after trusting in Jesus Christ. Uh, they were not water baptized as a necessary condition to, cho- to join local churches. You, you won't find an example of that. It doesn't exist. And I understand, I know the verses you would point to to try and suggest that might be the case. Uh, but but I, I'm, I would encourage you to take a little more time and gather the context of what's happening in those passages and verify that's actually what they did. Um, no one became part of a local assembly through water baptism. That's that's not what happened in in any in any of those passages. So um, so so here's another perspective. Acts one five. Let's let's read that real fast. Acts chapter one verse five. For John truly baptized with water, not the church. John the Baptist pre church prior to the church. He baptized with water, physical baptism. Right. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That's the baptism of the Spirit. Well, we, we know that from Acts chapter 10 to Acts chapter 11, when Peter begins to explain what happened with Cornelius. He says it was the same spirit baptism that we got back there, pointing back to Acts chapter 2. And, and, and so the Lord is telling them, stay in that upper room in a few days. You're going to be baptized. You're going to be immersed by the Spirit. All right, that's that's essential. All right, now, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts 2, verses 40 through 41, uh, it said they received his words and were baptized. All right, let, let's, let's go look at that real quick. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. It's, it's important to get the, the wording correct so that we make sure we're, we're following properly. And with many other words, did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then that then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Now, it doesn't say which baptism. It doesn't say that it was water baptism. It doesn't say that it was spirit baptism. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we're talking about souls. We're not talking about flesh. The context is not physical bodies. It's, it's the souls of men. All right. It's the, the person inside those bodies and the way those, the way that those souls enter the body of Christ is through spirit baptism. And so I, I, I don't believe that there's any physical water baptism in Acts chapter two. All right. Now, if you do, again, that's, that's okay. It, it doesn't say one way or the other. So it, all we're, all we're left to do is to try and, uh, gather the context and make sense of it. And that, that's okay if you believe it's physical water baptism. And, and here's why that's okay. They received his word, all right? 
according to Ephesians chapter one, uh, let me see if I have that in my notes here. We might need to look at that to to help uh, make sense of it. Uh, uh, let's let's go to Ephesians. It's not in my notes, but let's look at it anyways. It's it it will be helpful to put this in in perspective. Ephesians one verse um, eleven. We'll start there. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So here you have a group of men, the apostles, who first trusted the Lord. They, they believed the gospel and, and became, uh, they, they came to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. That's important. Somebody, those who first trusted in Christ, went to these people at Ephesus and preached the gospel to them, the word of truth. They trusted in Christ after they heard the word of truth. All right? So after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. All right? So here's the order of events. Someone preached the gospel to them. That's Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. They received the word. Acts chapter 2, they received Peter's words. Then they were baptized, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Acts chapter 2, those that received the word were baptized. All right, so in order, in order to receive the Spirit, to have the baptism of the Spirit, to be sealed with the Spirit, you have to believe the gospel, and it happens... The, the, I mean, I, you can't even say a second after. I mean, I mean, as soon as you believe the gospel, after that belief takes place, after you receive that word, you're immediately baptized with the Spirit. Well, what also happens, what, when does water baptism take place? Sometime after you receive the word. All right, so you, I think you can make a, a logical argument for either one. Personally, I believe that, that, it's, that it's spirit baptism. It is not water baptism. I, I don't see water baptism uh, being possible in that passage in the context, plus the context is souls, not people, not bodies, not flesh. Uh, uh, it's not John's baptism that's being carried on here. It's, it's, it's a start of something new. It's the Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit, I believe. Uh, so you, you take that how you want and, and do with it as you will. I, I, I still love you. It's okay. <laughs> um, then in Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, let's read that real fast. And they continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. All right, so so what's happening here is is souls are being added to the church through salvation. Well, the only way to do that is through spirit baptism. The only way to become part of the church is to trust in Jesus. And then upon your trust in Jesus, you are then immediately baptized by the spirit and, and put into the body of Christ. So, um, uh, and, and we can see it again. Look at, um, look at Acts 11. Let's read verses 13 through 17. And, and we'll see the same idea. Uh, Acts 11, 13 through 17. Verse 13, and he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, 
who shall tell tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell uh, fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? So he says, same thing happened to them that happened to us. They were they received the Holy Ghost. They were sealed with the Holy Ghost. They were baptized into the body based on a valid profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So that's that's the idea, and I hope it's helpful. Now, notice each passage, um, each passage, how the Lord separates the baptism of John, which was physical water baptism. And, and then, you know, he separates the water baptism from the baptism of the Spirit. The idea was that something more significant was coming. Water baptism is not significant. It's relevant. It's important. It, it's, you know, you should do it. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you should be water baptized. Um, that precedent was set in the New Testament, and it never went away. All right, so... But our brethren make water baptism far more important than the baptism of the Spirit. And if you don't have the baptism of the Spirit, you're going to hell. You're in serious trouble. If you get water baptized, it means absolutely nothing for for your eternal destiny and for the salvation of your soul. If you have been Spirit baptized, that means you have been saved and you you have subsequently been put into the body of Christ. That is far more important than, than physical water baptism. But somehow we get the thing flipped and we make water baptism more important than physical baptism. And that's, that's not good. All right, that's all for today. I sure appreciate your time. Uh, we'll pick up, we'll, we'll continue to go through chapter one and, and I'll get as much of it taught as I can here on this podcast. And I hope it'll be a blessing and a help to you. Thank you for listening. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.